0: we are live.
1: Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV this is the first webinar of our April 2016 series titled Journalism Today News Literacy and Learning in the Digital Age which was organized by the National Writing Project along with our great colleagues at Fusion, Youth Radio, uh, the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting and PBS NewsHour Student Reporting Labs. If you're watching this please take a moment to share it with your networks. I'm Leanna Gamber-Thompson, I'm a Program Associate at the National Writing Project and I'll be your host today. Uh, We have a great group of folks here. Um, We're talking with Sam Ford, Lissa Soap, Sarah Caveto, and Nona uh, Willis-Aronowitz about the changing nature of journalism. Um, So we're going to be talking a little bit about how uh, journalism has become more participatory and what that means for young people. Before we dive into the conversation, I want to go over a couple quick details. For those of you watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions through either um, the Twitter hashtags ConnectedLearning and 2nextprez. That's the number 2, N-E-X-T-P-R-E-Z. Or you can also use the Q&A feature, uh, which you can see embedded within the video player. And if you have questions, we'll do the best to address them here within the Google Hangout. This webinar is also being co-streamed at the National Writing Project's and it's part of a series of programming that's related to Letters to the Next President 2.0, which engages and connects young people ages 13 to 18 as they research, write, and make media to voice their opinions on issues that matter to them in the coming election, and hence that um, to Next pres hashtag. The webinar will also be a resource on letters to president.org, where you can find a lot of other great resources and opportunities related to the election, and also about writing and digital literacies. So that's everything that I have to share at the top uh, of the Hangout, but I I would love for everyone to um, have a chance to introduce themselves before we begin. So um, Lissa, do you want to start us off with introductions? Sure. My
2: name is Lisa Soap. Thanks so much for having us, Leanna. Um, so I am a senior producer and research director at Youth Radio in Oakland. That's where I am presently. Um, and uh, Youth Radio is a Peabody Award winning youth production are all about engaging young people as participants as leaders as the kinda next-generation voices of journalism and um, we carry out that work both as NPR's youth desk so our um, broadcast audience or one of our public media audiences comes through that long-standing partnership um, but over the last several years we've uh, expanded outlets um, to include a range of digital um, and um, broadcast outlets, as well as uh, um, an an innovation lab within our organization where young people develop mobile apps and web-based interactives so that they're telling their stories across all formats and platforms and I'm also a member of the MacArthur Foundation's Youth and Participatory Politics Research Network where we uh, both study and try to support the work of young people using digital and social media
1: to express civic voice and agency. Fabulous. Thanks, Lisa. Um Nona, do you want to go next?
3: Sure. Um, hi, my name is Nona Willis-Aronowitz. I'm the features editor at Fusion. That means that I Um, edit and commission all the things that you see in the Voices section plus um, other reported features that go in any number of topical sections. Um, What I do is a combination of um, commissioning personal essays, sort of like topical and news-pegged essays, and more traditional reported features, and something that i like to do is get um, people who are used to only writing personal essays or opinion pieces and trying to get them to actually become reporters. Um, and conversely, I get reporters to put a little bit more of their own voice um, into their pieces. So it's kind of I try to you know, make the voices section rigorously reported and researched but also really personable
1: and intimate and authentic. Awesome, thanks, Nuna. I'm just going to go across um, the screen as I see it on my um, Hangout window. And Sam, you're up next.
4: All right. Hi, I'm Sam Ford. I'm VP of Innovation and Engagement with Fusion, and work across a Univision suite of brands that includes outlets like The Root and Univision and uh, The Onion and that suite of, of brands. Um, I am. My background was originally in journalism. Uh, and I got my start in rural weekly newspapers and in fact in community journalism so my grandmother wrote what was called a society column uh, and I took over for her when I was 12. Uh, So for me there's always been this rootedness in journalism or the act of reporting as being part of a community and being rooted in a community as being a community effort and I'm interested in how that ethos uh, comes to bear in a digital age. Uh, so So in my work at Fusion Uh, I work across teams to think about new ways to tell stories uh, and new ways to engage audiences and make them part of the the storytelling process whether that be young activists uh, and some of the work we're doing with the the civic Paths groups at USC or right now I'm actually at the MIT Media Lab where we're in the midst of the Media Labs member week and talking with a range of different groups who are developing various products or approaches that involve bringing the audience in so I'm very excited about the subject and the focus of this series and tonight's discussion and and to be sitting next to you the folks at Youth Radio uh, who who do such a great job at 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 highlighting and bringing young voices into the conversation.
1: Great. Happy to have you here, Sam. All right, Sarah, you're up next.
4: All right. Hey guys.
0: Um, and thank you for having us as well. Um, so yeah, my name is Sarah. I was I started as a reporter when I was 16 at Youth Radio in their newsroom uh, and I reported on a number of different issues um, primarily focusing on juvenile justice um, and youth employment Um, I headed our juvenile justice desk for about two years um, and I am I'm currently a student at the New School uh, University in New York City uh, studying global studies and minoring in journalism and design Um, And I do my own, I do work a little work for Youth Radio sometimes, I do some of my own work, um, and I'm currently working on a project about um, the Salvadoran Civil War um, through audio, photo, and objects, um, and using participatory um, kind of aspects of it as well to bring community members from the Salvadoran community into that conversation.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so happy to have you all here joining in this conversation today. Um, So all of you have touched just even in your intros a little bit on um, the ways that news has become more participatory and engaging um, community members and young people and the audience more than maybe perhaps traditional journalism has. So I wanted to just start off the conversation maybe um, on a personal note and, and ask you all how news and journalism has changed in your own lifetime. Um, and, and you know, Sam brought up a great point about, um, you know, his grandmother and community journalism, so maybe there are actually a lot of great parallels um, that I don't want to gloss over, but I'd love for you to just think about, um, you know, how how has news changed, for better or worse, uh, and, and what does it look like now compared to when you were growing up? Anyone who wants to start can jump in. (laughs) Um, I'll
3: start. Um, I'm 31 right now. I've been doing journalism for, I guess, a little bit less than 10 years. And when I was, I was actually watching People vs. OJ Simpson recently. I don't know if anybody's been watching. Um, But I remember that, and actually I listened to the um, verdict over the loudspeaker in class when I was in sixth grade, and I remember it sort of occurred to me, and a lot of other people watching this, that that was sort of the birth of the 24-hour news cycle, um, where at any given moment news could break, um, and it's not just sort of plopping down for the evening news or the morning news. It was actually you kind of had to be on guard as a journalist at all times, and. Um, when I started at the Chicago Tribune in 2008, there was this big emphasis on on citizen journalism and and sort of hyper local reporting, um, because at this at that point it it had been true for you know more than 10 years that there was a 24-hour news cycle, and I think actually there was more um, focus on like there was more credence given to citizen journalists at that point because Twitter was so new and um, that, and like people didn't even really know how to control it at that point and I think that we've now reached a point where we know how to parse out like the alarmists to with from the people who actually are going to help us report the news and it's a little bit more measured and it's not so much of a free-for-all which I think is good because there's still that participa- participatory element but we're like in that second stage where Journalists have just a little bit more control over the news. That said, there's still somebody can tweet something at 2 a.m. and all of a sudden your day is screwed because you have to respond to that person, um, and they've sort of like bypassed any traditional news cycle rules. I
2: can I can jump in. Um thinking about educators who are watching um, and answer the question from the point of view of somebody who's worked for many years now with young journalists and and kind of noting the changes there and I would say one of the ways that that change has registered most vividly for us is through this. experience that we talk about as the digital afterlife of youth produced media because I remember a time at youth radio when one of the ways that we would kind of cheer on a young person who was getting on the mic for the first time for that very first live radio show that they are a part of the first week that they set foot at youth radio is we would say to them you know Well, just go up there and do it, and then it's going to evaporate into the ether. So how bad can it be? You know, if you totally bumble through it, or if you get something not exactly right, or, you know, it disappears, and that's the beauty of radio. And that's, of course, completely no longer the case. So that question that we now face as we collaborate with young journalists is what how do we make the most of digital afterlife and also how do we prepare for the worst of digital afterlife Um, and we we experience kind of an on a day-to-day basis both sides of that spectrum so the best of digital afterlife is that kind of what we're talking about participatory journalism that the conversation continues that there's a way to make a connection between that initial hit publish or put the story out on the air and impact that happens through the continued reporting through the social engagement. The downside of the digital afterlife, when you're working with young journalists in particular, is um, the backlash that they face because their content is visible and searchable um, on the part of institutions that they're holding accountable. So that's more on the investigative side. And then on the personal narrative side, and Nona, I'm sure you have to think about this too. you know how do we prepare young people who are 14, 15, 16 years old and want to go out with a deeply personal story and are absolutely convinced that they're ready to do it. but then if they put it out in a way that actually gets big audience, which can happen through youth radio, sometimes they feel very differently when they read hundreds of comments or where they see what it actually means when people in their community or people in the world know something about them that they can no longer control.
4: You know, I, th- I think about journalism as a participatory process you know it always has been right that it's never a reporter working in solitude because it takes sources it takes research it takes a team effort within the organization beyond the organization so I think it does help and those lessons from the past as, as Liana said is to think about You know, for my grandmother she was perhaps the preeminent expert in what was happening in McHenry Kentucky Population 411, but uh, she didn't. And this is I'm paraphrasing Dan Gilmore and we the media, who said, "I may know more than any uh, about the subjects I'm writing about than most of my readers individually, but I don't know more than they know collectively." And so, you know, it was very much the case that we saw, you know, in that community journalism model, we saw a person who had was designated as the curator. Uh, to help make sense of what was happening in this community, whether it be the potluck dinner at church on Sunday, or who had visited from out of state, or whatever it was that was happening in this small town, and she was perhaps the one person who knew the most, uh, but that was because of the connection she had to a community, and I think it's important for young people whether you know the thing I hate about the title "citizen journalism" is it imagines that everybody secretly wants to be journalist and we don't, right? Most of us, just like the idea of you know anybody can be a media producer now, well most people don't consider themselves media producers or have a desire to you know be a media producer in the traditional sense, the way we, that thinks. Uh, but yet we all are participating very deeply, whether it be in the circulation of media. Uh, and responding to the media and analyzing and critiquing and thinking about that as a system or a participatory process helps young people whether those young people in the classroom be aspiring journalists or they're going to be people who are engaging with and around media content uh, that this is a process that and that's active too right we have this model of news producer news consumer that I think uh, doesn't speak well to the the mode of, that we have now and how do we train young people to think about that reception side as well to understand how the media works, how stories are told, the role they play and in how information circulates, the role they play in and making sense of uh, and, and, and helping guide and shape the agenda uh, of what happens in the news and so when I think about participatory journalism uh, I don't want it to only be about co-creation and newsmaking process. I want it to be that larger context of how do we engage in the process of journalism societally, uh, and that's about a lot more than a journalist entity producing a story for a passive consumer.
0: Yeah, I'm um, <clears throat> I, speaking from my experience, and I'm so I'm 23, so my lifespan in terms of what how I've seen the news change is probably a little bit shorter than, than your your guys' is in some ways, um, but I can speak to... I think what I can speak to is just the level of agency that especially young people feel around um, their voice, and not just in cases um, like youth radio, but also just in their day-to-day lives. Like, I think about um, my classes here at the News School. Like, young people feel incredibly engaged with the news around them because they're allowed to respond to it, um, not just through Twitter and Facebook, um, but smaller blogs, smaller um, kind of like single-person run, run blogs, there's, um, there's a really a sense of being a part of the conversation that I think, I, for me at least, being when I was growing up, I didn't feel that I could respond to the news in that way. And, um, you know, even with my experience with youth radio um, as well, and knowing that a lot of people don't get, unfortunately, get the experience of being at youth radio, um, I happen to have a lot of friends who, despite not necessarily being journalists, um, are incredibly engaged in that way, and feel um, feel that they can kind of make um, make a difference or may have some sort of voice in uh, in the conversation when when things happen, which I think is one of the biggest changes that i've seen
1: that's fantastic and i i mean I, I would love to pick up on that notion of you know what you said, Sarah, about feeling empowered to respond to the news to speak back to the news to be part of the conversation and I, I'm wondering um you know, what particular, Lissa was talking a little bit about the digital afterlife, um, which I think gets at this, but what particular kinds of skills and literacies do young people need to have um, in or, or to, to sort of hone in order to participate? Because I, I could see um, on the flip side being really intimidated by, you know, all of the opportunities to participate or, you know, just, thinking about my own life, you know, I'm, I'm not such a Twitter maven myself, and, you know, thinking about sending out a tweet, and, you know, it it, it living there forever, or a bunch of people seeing it, it it's, a, it's a little nerve-wracking, and so, you know, I would love to think about how young people can navigate, um, kind of, you know, that, that wide open um, space um, through, you know, what what particular kinds of skills and literacies can they gain to to feel empowered in that way and not, you know, scared as if, as I might <laughs> like thinking about it um, if I were like 23 years old today?
0: I think I think there's definitely a sense, um, and I think I think a lot of the <laughs> we talk about young people as if they're like this completely separate entity that need to be taught in a different way, but I think. Um, but I think like any sort of skill that you as a news reader, or news consumer, or news creator um, need on deck, like, a, um, like kind of thinking twice about the things that you're reading, reading with a critical eye, looking at sources, doing your own research, those are all things that just as a person you need to develop, um, whether you're consuming news or consuming um, conversation or, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're, that you're doing, so um, in terms of a skill set, um, or even just the literacy. I think in terms of news literacy, it's it's also, it's really um, it's really just it's pretty straightforward. Just like being being critical, and then also having people around you who push you, adults in your life and other young people in your life who push you to think um, differently and to push you to be critical about your news sources as well. Because a lot of the time we um, we kind of read, we can end up reading news or re- um, getting information in a vacuum, um, which doesn't help us become kind of um, more well-rounded news consumers um, or creators.
2: Along those lines, because I was thinking the same thing, you know, that a, a lot of what stands out to me in terms of literacies are, you know, just what ha- what is taken to be a good journalist uh, f- for a long time. But this question of translation across multiple audiences is something that does feel like there's an um, that the the expectations around translation and being able to pivot from one audience to the next have intensified compared to even my earlier days here at youth radio so it used to be would have you know let's do say we're doing one of your juvenile justice stories and we in our primary outlet would be morning edition right so we knew exactly who that audience was we know how to kind of unity we know and both in terms of substance and even in terms of form um, and we know kind of the limits around that and how far we can push. And um, now, you know, it's like any one of those stories that we've put a lot of resources behind has to be translated for Snapchat and Instagram. And there has to be a Facebook play and there, it has to continue, you know, there has to be a ramp up to it and then there has to be the what next part after. And maybe there's a live event that's connected to it. So that ability to translate those core ideas out of the reporting, to this range of audiences at the same time that you have to realize there isn't a wall around any one of those stories so anybody who you think is in one audience can certainly migrate over to another and see exactly how you're talking about your material even when they are not the intended spectator to it so that seems like a, kind of a, a, a form of literacy that um, has intensified but I'm curious if, if you Sarah others would agree or disagree
4: Well, and I, I'm going to evoke some work that Liana is familiar with because she worked on it. I'm thinking about the idea. Uh, the, so, the the USC Civic Paths Group just rolled out a book called "By Any Media Necessary," and which, Lissa, I should mention, you, know, you were involved with as well. Uh, but I, you know, for me, that idea of, and I think media companies fall into this trap, and I want to think about how we don't. Um, is the question of you know once you build a set of set of platforms you think you have to tell a story in every one of those platforms becomes uh, it's in me uh, you know a, a problem that that leads <laughs> that that leads you in the wrong that leads you in the wrong direction and so as we're encouraging young people in their mode as producers or storytellers to think about what's the story we really want to tell and what are the formats or the platforms that best enable what that story is going uh, is going to be is something that not only I think it's great to encourage young people to think about but we as media organizations have to be better about because often you know we have the reverse problem we build channels and then we think okay how do we fill them with content and I think contents a very ugly word uh, because it sounds like filler and that's often what it becomes well we have built X now so how do we fill it with stuff and yeah, you know, rather than saying this is the the issue we want to cover, this is the story we need to cover. What are the platforms or the the modes of production that'll best capture that story? And then I think for the audience, you know, whether or not you plan to produce stories, how do you understand how these me- this media is made? All the way down to, and I'll go back to, to 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 the point that Sarah made earlier: is how do you think about, you know. I think young people matter especially not because they're these different into you know that millennials I don't want to get known on that angle uh, but you know that <laughs> but that idea of all these misconceptions of what millennials are I, you know the one point I would say is for young people it's the place where we have the best point of intervention for this sort of civic education because I think uh, you know most adults need a lot of this sort of education too but there's no easy way to reach them anymore and, uh, and the, quite the same way we have the captured attention of young people in the education system so how do we help them think about uh, you know, crafting the next generation of people who are very savvy consumers of the news, uh, and not consumers at all, but active participants in the process, and that requires understanding everything from business models of how commercial journalism works to the business model of the algorithms of the companies that give us access to that content, to the search engines that allow us to reach that content. To have some working understanding of the tools that we work with and how they're you know however imperfect they're the ways we can engage civically and how do we use them for our own uses and purposes seems to me to be an important set of questions to empower young people with all the way down to their own responsibilities which is to say the simple act of sharing a story you know how is that a civic responsibility as well and what 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 need do you have to vet the information you're going to share and what does it mean if you discover something you shared was wrong Uh, you know what's the retraction for an individual all these questions are journalism questions and as we have taken the mode of distribution away from media companies and we all play a greater role in how information circulated you know the old spider-man quote with great power comes great responsibility I think there's a lot of potential here but I'm worried if we don't you know stress the critical thinking that that, that Sarah was mentioning. How, how how do we approach that and what do we need what kinds of questions do we need to ask and I think the the classrooms a great place to engage in those questions uh, uh, and that's you know that's real work that that educators have to roll up their sleeves and get involved with and it's great that the National Writing Project and others you know p- uh, provide tools and ways of thinking about it
3: um I just, I just want to say a word about um, opinion writing and personal essays because I think that quote unquote young people, and I'm kind of including myself in this category, <laughs> um, get a bad rap for just writing personal essays and confessional things that quote unquote aren't journalism. And I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think it's actually really refreshing and and a call back to sort of the new journalism of the 1960s that there actually are there are more spaces to have a sensibility and um, and like sort of personal connection to what you're writing. Um, I think that's actually a positive development, but I think it can go, it can ring hollow when there's no context behind it. Um, I get a lot of pitches that are just like here's this super personal thing about me apropos of nothing except that it's kind of sensational and I never assign things like that. What I really try to do is get the writer whenever possible to understand the cultural context behind whatever they're going through and then ask them again whether or not they think that there's something there and in many cases like I said in my intro I'll encourage them to do reporting around it because it's one thing to write a personal essay about an experience but it's an it's, an, and it's another thing to write a longer more researched piece about why your problem isn't just your problem it's part of the larger pattern and you can really imbue some passion and some voice in this piece by sharing your personal story and employing the first person but it doesn't have to be the only thing that constitutes the piece so I think I don't know necessarily if this is like a generational thing so much as just like any young person from any generation, but I think the tendency to be really solipsistic when you're very young and not realizing the bigger context is something that should be targeted pretty early. And I'm like I said, I, I did that when I was like 22, um, and I learned later that it's just so much more effective, even like, you know, even traffic-wise to have something like that to be able to offer something like that rather than just like an exo-Jane-ish headline about what happened to you specifically
0: yeah I do I think just to to jump in as well I I would add that something that's important for kind of the toolkit for for young people or generally for people is also yeah understanding the context um, the context that you're creating in as well like understanding what else is being put out there in the world Um, so not being just a passive consumer, but also but also engaging with um, the media that is also being created not by um, not just by big outlets, but also by other young people. Because I think there's there's definitely something to be said for um, for the com- for creating I mean creating a community essentially of of young people, young journalists, um, and kind of recognizing the world that you're putting this stuff out into because it doesn't exist in a bubble um, and it's all related in some way. So kind of like what Nona is saying is. Um, rings really true to me as well as I think it's um, recognizing the ways in which your story is unique and and the ways that it's not um, can make, you know, the stories that are produced that much stronger as well.
2: And that's actually... Sorry, sorry. go ahead. I was going to say, that's the the kind of trajectory that we're talking about from the first-person narrative into reported pieces and even full-blown investigations is kind of structured into the um, workflow of Youth Radio's newsroom and just again from an educator point of view we've developed some curriculum toolkits that try to kind of walk through that pathway so that oftentimes the first thing that a young person does when they come into youth radio's newsroom as a contributor is to write a commentary a simple first person piece and and then out of that when there's and you know we do have outlets even for that but we also recognize to Nona's point that there's so much more that can be done when you can broaden that perspective, um, and so from there it can turn into a feature. And we've had, you know, one of the investigations that was had the um, most measurable impact for youth radio. We were part of a, uh, reporting a series on Navy abuse in the um, in the U.S. military that started with a first person commentary and ended up um, getting the attention of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and causing the you know a senior level military officer to be forced to leave his position so it all started with that first-person piece but then months and months of work kicked in to enable it to to get to that kind of social impact
1: yeah I'm so glad we're touching on this topic because I was really I'm glad you brought it back Nona because I was really struck when you were talking about kind of um, you know your efforts to make reporting more intimate and bring opinion into reporting and vice versa and I'm wondering I mean you know I'm wondering if there's any obviously Fusion and Youth Radio are both really innovative organizations and I'm wondering if there's been any pushback to sort of that um, you know Crossover between the personal and the this, this sort of objective or uh, reporting, um, and, and how they're embedded in this. This question is sort of a bigger question about, you know, how does this uh, more participatory model bump up against, um, you know, the sta- the standards of traditional journalism as a field and and the rigorous, um, you know, the rigorous standards that have been developed over years and years. Um, so I'm wondering if you know, there's a question here about um, how this relates to journalism as a field or traditional journalism, um, and and you know how 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 you as organizations and individuals are navigating that. Um, I can I can try to answer that.
3: I honestly think that um, that by combining reporting with per- personal essays, I I often. Allow my writers to deflect some heat off of them because they're not just laying out their personal lives for all to consume. They're also saying like, "Hey, this is what this is built on," and it gives them a little bit of armor um, for putting out their stories. But um, and I also I want to stress that like this isn't new. Like this has kind of been the tradition ever since. You know the glossy magazines got more and more creative and voicey several like a handful of decades ago. It's just that um, it's just that you know it's there's so much more of it and there's so much more bad stuff because the barriers are so much lower that it's hard to parse out the really good like narrative nonfiction. You know personal-slash-reported essays from the, like, really bad half-assed stuff. Um, I, I really don't think this is, like, a new thing so much as there's just, like, a, a lot more to parse out. And I think in some ways that's good because it allows for a diversity of voices in many different senses. But it's also, it's harder as an editor to, to realize, like, what you, what you should publish and what you shouldn't. But I haven't, like, the more I push um, people to meld the two forms, the 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 less criticism and heat they get on the internet. I mean, and and I've seen a lot of people say cranky things when they're expecting just a reported piece and there's a little voice in it. But I've never heard anybody say, "I thought this was going to be a personal essay. Why did you ask other people? Why did you do more research?" Like nobody has ever said that, which is good.
4: Yeah, you know, for if we were to imagine fusion in particular in this wider swath of Univision uh, media and to think about the role that an outlet like Univision coming from a you know, quote-unquote, I don't I hate this phrase, but ethnic media background, but seeing itself uh, as an, you know, an advocate for its audience in ways uh, I think is important to, to think about too. And how do we separate the idea of neutrality from objectivity? That objectivity means neutrality because we have those are two different words because they're two different concepts. So you know one of the things I want to think about is uh, you know, I, I love being in an outlet that's freed from the idea that you have to get a counter quote for every story because you want to appear neutral. Uh, sometimes when we do a, you know, a six-month investigation or nine-month investigation into a subject like the Panama Papers or uh, uh, the juvenile justice system or the fentanyl crisis, we don't come out of that not knowing, not coming to any conclusions. And to be able to say that objectivity sometimes leads you in a direction. And to back that up with research and reporting, I think is important, all the way down to, you know, to personal essays from people. Now, you know, I think it's also important to understand objectivity is something you strive for, but something that never exists, right? That we're all always trying to check our personal biases and our personal situation. And in fact, the the process that, that Nona's describing is on an individual level that very thing what experience did you have now how do we map that against other people's experiences so that we can help you know take that very personal understanding and then look at that wider society i mean this is what traditional even objective journalism is focused on you always find a very localized example and then zoom out you know every you know every journalist story starts with how the hurricane affected one family and then you zoom out and tell how it affected the community as a whole i mean that is kind of how we built journalism so the idea that that sometimes that personalized example is your own and that you speak from a personal voice uh, i think is uh, you know, makes a lot of sense in the world of, of journalism is, is where outlets are headed for a very good reason, uh, and to understand that we are all rooted as readers, as listeners, as viewers, and as content creators in this process and they're all human beings and this veneer of, an, uh, you know, a an, uh, an uh, you know, neutralized voice that's of no person in particular that's anonymized is a creation of a certain phase of journalism in America, uh, and isn't necessarily how it's often worked in our own country, and certainly isn't necessarily how it works in other places. And kind of parsing through all that, I think is very important. Uh, and and you know, I think it's important to, to work help young people back to history and context. One of my grad school advisors was a media historian, William Maricchio. You know, and always it's how do we understand the current media moment and where's media headed by where media's been. Uh, and you know and I think we often have to give that context to young people in the classroom is to understand kinda here's how things are now here's how they were a few years ago here's the larger history of these sorts of things sometimes we can be freed by going back to the moment before we decided this was something else and I feel like we're in one of those moments now in the you know what still early days of digital journalism kind of frees us from this old broadcast model that we were in a few decades of but that imagine a very few people could produce journalism and send it out to everybody else who passively consumed it uh, is a fairly recent phenomenon and I think is a bubble in the overall media history rather than the norm
1: Sam I really like what you were saying earlier about you know thinking about participatory journalism as more than just citizen journalism right there is circulation there is um, you know, remix, there's share, you know, there, there are all of these ways that people engage news and information um, that isn't content creation or um, reporting, but that matters kind of in this larger ecosystem. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things you mentioned, thank you for the plug earlier, <laughs> By Any Media Necessary, uh, it's a, a co-authored book uh, with a group of um, scholars at USC uh, that I worked on with Henry Jenkins, among others, coming out um, next month, so check it out. And Lissa wrote the afterword. for it. So. But as I was doing um, research for that book, one one of the things that struck me is that, you know, young people really get get their news in a different way. Um, most of the folks that I talked to and I think about my own practices as well, and I think this fits in, you know, it's like I find news in my Facebook feed or in my Instagram feed. Um, You know, increasingly, um, you know, presidential candidates, news organizations are, you know, on Snapchat getting really important information out there about um, news and, 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 you know, politics to young people on Snapchat. And so, like, what does it mean when um people don't, might not necessarily engage with um original sources or like they're kind of getting a curated um version of news through their feed um i'm just kind of curious about that and and about how you think about that either the in you know the detriments of that or um you know the positive aspects of that in terms of the circulation that you're talking about, or remix, or having engaged um, consumers of news. That was a really long, winding.
4: Well, it makes well, <laughs> a lot of important points. I mean, one of the things I'll think about too is how do we think about journal, you know, the act of journalism. If we're thinking about like engaging with social justice issues and topics that are important, and thinking through, and parsing through things, you know, I would say that some of the best uh, outlets. For helping us think through a lot of important news questions, have been entertainment outlets, right? How is, uh, you know, really, really good, you know, whether it be the, you know, the great work that the team that does East Los High uh, does, uh, all the way to, you know, thinking about how a series like American Crime or House of Cards help us reflect on things in some ways better than journalism does, um, you know, by being in that fanish sort of entertainment realm. Uh, now one of the things I love about Fusion is that we, you know, we focus on issues that matter wherever they pop up, uh, and that might include in pop culture and uh, other places. And we engage with those things very seriously in those in those places. But, but, but to, to your point more specifically, you know, I think the biggest question is—it's back to the point that that several people have raised across this webinar—is in the classroom, how do we equip people with the critical thinking skills to be uh, fruitful participants in this overall? Process because there's a lot of potential here for powerful, transformative ways of engaging, but only if we understand how we're engaging the uh, ramifications of our actions, and feel connected as a community, right? So if you don't feel any connection, I mean, if you think about a lot of trolling behavior, it's often of people who don't feel a connection to the community that they're that they're engaging with, right? So to to give people stakes and to understand. How we, how this is a connected process, I think is is important, and uh, you know. So for instance, whether it be Wikipedia, uh, you you were talking about sourcing earlier, and, and one of the things that often comes up is you can watch your policies around something like Wikipedia, and rather than banning it as a source in the classroom, how you invite people into understanding how it works, uh, because you know it. And understanding how research works, there's a professor Ted Hovet at Western Kentucky University who said, "I never want to use the word research in my classroom again, because it implies this very passive process where you go out and find a set of facts about a subject from sources, rather than thinking about research as a very active, critical engagement in a process. That, in fact, it is an act of journalism to do research uh, in a way, and how we think about that as an active curatorial." process where we're engaging with sources we have to vet whether those sources are valid or not and that we're all always in that critical engagement mode but that's something that has to be learned uh and i think it's something that we have to kind of encourage across our uh whether it's in education or in journalism i mean i think media companies bear a lot of responsibility there too you know we've trained we try to train people to be passive traditionally right to accept and trust whatever we tell them in ways that I think we're having to now move ourselves out of and also help you know work move our audiences out of because we imagine this sort of trust Uncle Walter Cronkite he'll tell you the truth uh... and not saying that he didn't uh, most of the time but it's you know that's a very different mode than I think the mode we're in now or should be in now
2: and you know uh... thinking about how that connects to a weekly Event here at Youth Radio, our editorial meetings. Um, we, uh, you know, I'm thinking about and try to come up with stories that we're going to take on for that week or for the near term, looking forward. And a lot of those stories come from their social media feeds, and I'm sure this is true of you know non-youth driven <laughs> newsrooms as well, where they'll say something that's come across Facebook or Tumblr. Um, and what I would say is that's a that's a really important. Um, Set of sources, they bring a perspective. They have insight and access to a kind of analysis, a set of conversations that other people may not have access to, and that all of that material is newsworthy. But the act of just reading and even sharing, um, sharing in their social media, I would say, is an act of participatory politics or a kind of civic engagement because they're looking at they're combing through this information and they're finding what's interesting and they're sort of coming up with a way of potentially seeing that as a starting point for a story but for it to move into the realm of journalism they have to know what to do with that material they know how, they have to know how to advance those conversations to interrogate those conversations to tell something new out of it and that's where we come in and that's where other organizations like ours come in or that's where individual young people find it within their communities to do that work so it's not only in our organizations but it's also in their own um, in their own communities online and in, in real life and in their schools um, but I do think it's you know that is where there is still a role I would say for very intentional um, support education and standards around what what it takes to be doing journalism out of the sourcing that can happen within one social media feeds
1: Sarah, Nona, do you have any thoughts on that? and Or any experiences using your own social media feed to... <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. No, I do have thoughts on that. I feel really ambivalent about it because um, I often feel as if I'm missing things by simply staying in my own chosen curated um, vibe. I mean, like, I, I, at one point, well, for many years, I was a reporter who... who Um, was really interested in in people's perspectives who weren't from, like, New York and San Francisco and, like, Chicago and L.A. Um, And I really traveled across the country, like, multiple times and, like, had a lot of those people, like, become my Facebook friends and become my, like, Twitter followers and vice versa. And I think, like, geographically, like, that was really key to, like, making me a holistic journalist, like, really making sure that, like, people I was talking to like, not only were, like, ethnically diverse, but also in terms of geography and, like, the kinds of lives they were living. However, I do think that, like, most of us, even the purest journalists and who who, like, mean the best, often tend to stay in the same ideological bubble, just because of, like you don't really want somebody who vehemently disagrees with you on political issues especially if they're emotional or political issues like in your damn feed all of the time like it can be really psychically stressful um but I think that's the danger of having a curated Facebook and Twitter feed um, I think like that's the main hurdle that journalists and just like productive humans should try to find a nice balance of like, there's some people that I follow who um, report on and will, like, tell me key things about the conservative realm without me necessarily having to follow, like, a ton of conservatives. Um, and that's that's sort of, like, helpful to me. But I think, yeah, it's really important to follow, like, people who are not just in your circles in many different realms. And not people often think of, like, diversity as just like racial and uh, socioeconomic but it's also like this is a giant country and there's all like a lot of media people tend to be concentrated in several different areas and I think it's really detrimental I'm really glad that in early in my career I understood at least that part of it
0: I um yeah I guess I have some i have some issues with you using Facebook even as a source for that same reason, just because um, I completely agree with you, Nona, in the sense that I think I get uncomfortable when I agree with most of the things that I'm seeing uh, on my Facebook feed, because that means I'm probably not getting a very diverse um, amount of content, um, which isn't to say that it's not uh, a useful tool to kind of check the pulse on certain issues. Um, and I do think that there's I have a diverse enough... Um, kind of array of people within my networks that I, I get occasionally get little things here and there that I'm like huh wasn't expecting that, um, but I think um, it's also realizing that the network is the network is is enclosed that a lot of the kind of conversations that are being had um, that are going to be nuanced that are going to be informative in a way um, that looking at like a headline or reading a short article um, from or a short uh, comment on someone's Facebook cannot are happening in. Um in real life as well, so you have to kind of be able to do that balance, be able to um, investigate and dig deep into the news feed or into the networks, whether it's Twitter or whatever social media you use. Um, but then take that information and then see what's happening outside in the real world as well, because those conversations are happening. like you can you can read the comments and you can read the articles, but also go to the city hall meetings, also go to the rallies also. Um, be willing to strike up in real life conversations with people who you may not be friends with on Facebook, but who also may not agree with you um, on political issues because those are are obviously great resources. So I think being able to have your hand in both, being able to have feet in both worlds is is really important because I think you can get a lot out of both of them, um, but it's all a matter of of being able to kind of make that balance work for you um, and take the things that you need um, to do the reporting, the best reporting that you can from both of those worlds.
3: Yeah, and something that I kind of forgot to do, to say, is um, that there's a whole swath of people who are not on social media, never will be on social media. If they are, their accounts change all the time, their access to internet fluctuates, um, and those people's voices often get left out. I uh, I mean, I think a lot of journalists know that the vast majority of people are not on Twitter, but... Facebook is considered the great equalizer, and I think that that's an unfair assumption because there there is a digital divide even among younger people, um, and we always have to keep that in mind that it's act it's going to be much more difficult to report on, um, you know, poor or working class or struggling young people because they don't have the kind of access to. And the time um, with like social networks, they just don't, so I always think I always try to have my writers keep that in mind as well like don't only rely on social media for your sources because you're missing a whole chunk of people
4: Well, and to imagine you know to forget that Facebook is uh, not a public utility, right, and that there also are people who you know when we sort of force You know, only audiences who participate. I think about this when it came to like publications that made people authenticate to comment through Facebook, right? So you're now sort of forcing that only by engaging with this corporate entity uh, can you become a valid participant in our conversation. Seems to be a strange place for journalists to put people in because there are a variety of reasons. People either can't or might not want to use that particular company's platform, and and you know and think of, think about that. I think you know we we are. I just met earlier today with uh, General a Professor here at MIT, Sasha Costanza Chalk who uh, has a platform called Bojo uh, that's focused on just this just this question of you know often I think big media. Uh, it, true classic journalism is about telling the stories of disadvantaged people to other privileged people who want to read stories about them and that seems to me to be a troubling model just like the public media you know when you watch public media and it's sponsored by Ralph Lauren and Viking River Cruises it worries me uh, because you have a very specific model of who's watching uh, who's watching public media and to think about how we make sure we're telling stories to the audiences we're telling stories about that we're involving them them in these processes is important. But Bojo's focused on how do you, you know, how do you not have a, a participatory call that only happens on Twitter, uh, that allows for people who don't have broadband internet access or who may not have smartphones. To still be able to engage with a conversation that you're trying to have, especially when you're dealing with issues that impact people in poorer communities, uh, I think is important. And I also wanted to point everybody toward Joshua Benton at the Neiman Lab wrote a piece a week or two ago about the journalism industry and the fact that we're moving more and more. Right, local regional publications are shrinking in budgets and sizes and more and more journalism jobs are moving to national publications and for talent reasons those national publications are often located in New York and LA so as you have a centralized media landscape how do you, uh, you know, on the other hand people could work from anywhere I work for fusion from Kentucky uh, and you know we have contributors from all over so how do you counterbalance that fact of having the professionalized journalism pool gravitate to a couple of cities uh... with the fact that that then you know not everybody's going to take Nona's long longview uh... Of trying to push yourself to to engage across a range of geographies in our in, in, you know across our country or across the world and i think that's a, something journalism as an industry really has to push itself toward uh... as is, is how to counterbalance that uh... assumption you know another thing i I worry about is class is harder to catch than you know diversity by race and and gender or sexual orientation or other things is something that's a little easier to check the box on. One of the problems with journalism professionally, as soon as you hire somebody, right? Nobody wants somebody who's below the poverty line working for a national news publication because in theory we pay our people well enough uh, to not be in that economic condition. But that means that as soon as we become professionalized. We lose, you know, we leave, or we may know we may have come from a community of poverty, but we're no longer embedded within it. And how do we deal with that? Right, that it's harder to stay embedded in that viewpoint uh, when you professionalize uh, in something like journalism. And these are all things that I think the the journalism as an industry or as a professionalized journalist you have to challenge yourself with. But I also think it's important for students to think critically about what they're reading and uh, and listening to and. Uh, What's the orientation of the organization that's creating this? Where are they at? And do they understand the world they're reporting on in the way you do? And understand often readers, uh, listeners, and viewers have very valid viewpoints that may not be represented well in what they're reading in a national news publication.
1: So those are all fantastic points. I, I want to be mindful of the time we have about three or four minutes to wrap up, but I think um, that's a great point to kind of... Um, get us started on the wrap-up, Sam. You know, Lissa brought up some great um, resources, curricular resources from Youth Radio a little bit earlier, but uh, and you're talking about kind of advice for students about um, examining um, content critically. Is there anything, so I, I would say let's just go around um, all of us before we um, wrap up and if there's any final points that you want to make, um, please make those. And I would my last question for you is thinking about our audience um, as largely made up of educators um, you know um, what advice would you have for them to um, you know help encourage their students um, be more savvy in this participatory landscape and um, engage the news uh, more critically so even just Little, little bit of advice for any educators or learners watching about um, you know how, how to really engage in this environment um, going forward. Melissa do you want to start?
2: Sure, um, uh, well I'm just thinking about maybe it's because Sarah's on the hangout with, with me but um, Sarah and I have worked together closely for for many years on some of the stories that have come out of Youth Radio and um, I guess when I think about teachers and their roles supporting um, students We have a very different arrangement here it's not teachers and students it's really um, young people and adults who come at stories sometimes from different vantage points um, who kind of get into that creative space together um, where young people have final editorial say and should be driving the process but we are transparent with the young people and publicly about the idea that it really is a youth adult collaboration behind at least the stories that are really high stakes where it's going to go out in a big way and some people could have that the stories could have a real impact on people's lives both the storyteller and some of the individuals who are named in the stories and so my Advice: One thought is is to think for for educators is to think of you know kind of challenge yourself to be in that space with young people in a different way, because it's both an opportunity for you. It's incredibly rewarding and fulfilling to be a collaborator with young people in storytelling projects. So it's like it's just fun and great, um, but it's also your responsibility to stay in it with them if, if things get ugly. And coming like young people need. Um, adults in their lives and institutions to have their backs when that story takes a different turn than the one that was anticipated and so my you know and so there are toolkits out there and hopefully we will put them visible in a way that people can see them and there are ways to um, you know to support young people in telling their stories but part of it is for adults to kind of stay in the mix and stay in the process
1: with them. That's great. Nona do you wanna um... Do you have any final thoughts? While getting and driving the process.
3: Sure. Um, I hate to sound like a broken record, but um, I would just encourage young journalists to be, to get out of their comfort zones physically as soon as possible. Um, I think, like, when somebody... Is young. They don't have kids yet. They're like not. They haven't been entrenched in their careers yet. They have opportunities to travel and to do other projects that they might not be able to do. Even if you like don't have all that much money, you still can like. There, that's kind of no excuse to just stay where um, you're comfortable. I think that's like the first thing I would tell anybody who wants. You don't want to be a reporter. Don't, like, don't be afraid to leave your hometown and also don't be afraid to leave, like, the media bubbles of, like, New York and DC, basically. Because I know people who are, like, amazing journalists, but they just have, like, such a narrow perspective because they went up the ranks really conventionally and like had that internship and then had that editorial assistant job and then this and that and then they like never really got to explore and talk to people who they never otherwise talked to and that's like the best thing about being a journalist.
1: Awesome. Sam, any final thoughts? I know you you, you mentioned a couple things um, a couple minutes ago but anything else?
4: Yeah So so I think it would be helpful to imagine uh, processes where you can try to help students see the world from somebody else's perspective, and whether that be, you know, from feeds on social media that they're not engaged with. I think back to uh, one of my my other grad school mentor, Henry Jenkins, who I've done a lot of projects with. Uh, we did a, a, a book a couple years ago called Spreadable Media, and one of the things we talked about was this concept of pop cosmopolitanism. So the idea is you don't have to necessarily physically travel to places to see and engage with the world from the perspectives of those places and that's a potential that exists that often we don't actually engage with uh, so i want to think about how people in the classroom can encourage people to see the world through the perspectives of somebody else you know i mean in an ideal world that might be logging into somebody else's feed and seeing it from their personalized algorithm rather than your own so swapping feeds now there are all kinds of privacy reasons we might not actually want to do that but that same concept I'll you know I remember the day after the Newtown shootings I had a friend who lives in Islamabad uh who had posted an op-ed that basically focused on um, that Mr President and Americans understand how uh your drones are killing young children in our country. And it was this perspective that was so drastically different from anything I had been reading at the time, because this was before we talked about drone policy, is to think about, wow, right, this is an audience who's reading about a tragedy that's happening in America from a very different lens than we are, who are thinking about something Americans weren't acknowledging at the time and the way we are now. And so I think like how do you as an educator perhaps bring a perspective that is from a from a different part of our country, from a different social sector than your students are from and kind of having that jarring experience curating that for your class from time to time uh, to say here's how that same issue looks from somebody who's not in this room uh, who's not part of our discussion that might drastically change the way you think about it It can just be a a powerful experience
1: fantastic Sarah
0: sure so um, I think, I think I'm in a special position in that I, I worked with Lissa and um, a lot of our team at Youth Radio and then I was also working with young people um, within our newsroom as someone who is still kind of learning that. So I got to be an educator and a learner at the same time and I think um, one of the biggest takeaways I took from that and something that I think any educator could use especially kind of as young people are moved into a realm where they can participate and have their voices and have a sense of agency. Um, in the news um, at this point is um, be, you know, be the student, be the content creator, and be the consumer that you wish to see in the world. So I think for me, a lot of the um, a lot of the most impactful relationships I was able to have with students at youth Radio was um, were the times when they could see me working through a lot of the issues they were working through in their own creation and their own kind of understanding of, of different concepts um, both in the news and in the world um, as well and recognizing um, and acknowledging yourself as as continuously learning as well and being within that process and then showing that like showing that work showing that you're still working through it and being willing to um, being willing to us up to that because I don't think any of us can can say that we're experts on on any of this even though I think we all know a lot about it because it's still ever expanding and ever growing um, so being willing to kind of fess up to that and then also show your work as well because I think that there's a that's the equalizer between um, educators and and learners is is showing that we're we can be both um, at the same time
1: I love that I think that's such a lovely point to end on and and just that idea of you know everyone's continually learning and, and no one is really ever the expert. So um, I think those are, you, you put it so beautifully. So I don't want to try to paraphrase <laughs> um, what you said to end our webinar. So we're out of time, but this, this hour has flown by because we have just had um, such a great conversation and so many fantastic points have been raised. I want to thank you all again for being here. Um, This wraps up the first webinar of this April 2016 series on Journalism Today, but I really encourage you to um, keep the energy going on Twitter using those hashtags ConnectedLearning and 2NextPrez. There will also be a full video recording of the webinar immediately um, on ConnectedLearning.tv with other curated content on the way. If you found the conversation helpful, please, again, share it with your networks. And if you want to know more about upcoming webinars that Connected Learning TV, which is now produced by National Writing Project's Educator Innovator, you can visit educatorinnovator.org and sign up for our email newsletter on the homepage. Again, it was so great talking to all of you. Um, I hope you'll all tune in uh, on... April 21st at the same time for a webinar with participants from the Pulitzer Center um, as we expand on this news and journalism theme. So thank you all again and have a great night.